come to this time in our service where we take up our, our offering. We want you to know that if you're a guest with us today, the only thing we would desire back from you would be that little white card that Kent mentioned earlier. Uh, if you drop that in the offering plate during this time, we would appreciate it or take that with you to the, the guest reception. This is a time for our, uh, our church members and, and regular attenders, an act of worship to give back to the Lord from what he's entrusted us. The Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of heavenly, heavenly lights. There is no shifting of shadows with him. And that means that everything that we have is a gift from God. Every beat of our hearts, every, every breath that we draw in, and every penny that we possess. And this is an opportunity for us to express back to God our love and devotion to him in some small way. Whatever your gift may be today, we want to ask the Lord to take what we give, and to multiply it for service in his kingdom. So let's pray toward that end this morning. Father, as our ushers come and as we prepare to engage in this act of worship, to give back to you, Lord, we know what your word says, that you love a cheerful giver. And Lord, if there would be anything in us, any attitude in us that would keep us from giving cheerfully, Father, would you change that attitude? That we give back to you not because of some bland obligation. We give back to you out of hearts overflowing with love and devotion. And so as we give, Lord, we pray that you would take these meager offerings and that you would multiply them in service of your kingdom. Lord, even as we heard just a few minutes ago about the multiplication ministry of Youth Ministry International, God, would you do that same kind of a work among us? Lord, we desire not just addition, but multiplication of your kingdom. Lord, may your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And this we pray in Jesus' name.
This morning we're going to talk about the global reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and I was hoping this morning that, that we could turn our eyes outwardly a great deal today. And I was trying to think about how best for us to do that. And so I've got a video here that I want to share with you. And basically the idea behind this video is what if we were to take our world today all 7 billion people on the planet, and we were to boil that down into a village of 100 people, roughly the size of the gathering here this morning. What if we represented the world today? What would that world look like? I can dare say it would look a lot different than the folks we have gathered here this morning, and I hope this video will help you to get a little bit of a perspective on the nature of our world today. So check this out. if the world were a village of 100 people? 51 people in the village would be boys, 49 would be girls. There would be 60 Asians, 14 Africans, 12 Europeans, 8 Latin Americans, 5 from the United States and Canada, and 1 from the South Pacific. The village would have 18 cars, 33 villagers would own cell phones, and one would be dying of starvation. 30 villagers would be unemployed. 53 villagers would live on less than $2 a day. 80 would live in substandard housing. 24 wouldn't have any electricity. 33 would be able to read. And 16 people would have access to the internet. The world were a village of 100 people. God still would have sent his son to die for them, and he'd love each and every one of them all the same, with the same endless depth, the same passion, the same grace. All 100 would need Jesus. 33 would know him as their Lord and Savior. One would be actively telling others about him. If you have your Bibles this morning, if you'll open to Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56. We're going to look at the first eight verses this morning as we bring to a conclusion this, this series we've been walking through, Good News for All Nations. The message of the prophet Isaiah could be summed up in one word. All 60 chapters of Isaiah could be summed up in the word salvation. From beginning to end, his message was, salvation is coming, salvation is coming, salvation is coming. He was speaking to a people who were desperate for salvation, both politically, economically, in every way that we can probably imagine, except for they weren't really taking seriously their spiritual need for salvation, but they would before too long. And today in chapter 56, we're going to bring uh, this series to a close even though there's several chapters left of the book of Isaiah. But I want you to see this morning and be reminded today that the gospel that we celebrate, that we enjoy, that we revel in, that we proclaim and preach week after week and hopefully day after day with our lives and with our words is a global gospel. 
It's not just for the 5% of the world that lives within the borders of the United States of America. It's for all 100%, and I hope you'll see that as we walk through these things today. If you'd stand with me in honor of God's word today, we'll read Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 8. The prophet Isaiah spoke these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast. Who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. You can be seated. Father, as we're seated together today, Lord, maybe we may be reminded today that the, the Bibles that so many of us hold in our hands are not readily available to millions, even billions in our world today. Lord, may we be reminded that this church where we come to worship as your people is nowhere near as prevalent in other places of the world as it is here where we live. We have so much, and we take so much of it for granted. Lord, would you give us a global perspective today? Enlarge the borders of our thinking and of our acting. May we look beyond ourselves, beyond our county, beyond our state, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. Help us to see the many who need the gospel that we have an overflow of. And may we take it to them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to show you three promises in the Scripture today. Isaiah is is full of the promises of God from beginning to end, but there are are three that stand out in this chapter that I I want to share with you today. And these are promises, as the title implies, these are promises for all people. I want us to get this in our mind today, that, that the promises of God are not dependent on the color of your skin, 
They're not dependent on your socioeconomic class. They are not dependent upon your educational standing. They're not dependent on whether you can read or not read. They're not dependent on whether you live on less than $2 a day, as most of the world's population does, or whether, as we do, we live in prosperity that no other country in the history of the world has ever known. The promises of God are not dependent upon us in any way. And they remain true for all peoples. The first promise there in those first couple of verses is the great promise to expect salvation. Look what he says there in verse 1. He says, thus says the Lord. This is a message from God to the people. The Lord says, keep justice and do righteousness. We'll come back to those in just a minute. But he says, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. You have to remember this morning that Isaiah writes around the year 700 B.C. That means 700 years before Christ walked on this earth, before he was born of a virgin and lived 32 sinless years and then went to that cross and died in our place. 700 years before, the prophet Isaiah is writing, soon the salvation of God will be revealed. You see, for them, they had been looking for it as the Jewish people for hundreds of years, generation after generation all the way back to Adam in Genesis chapter 3 when the very first promise of God was made that there will come one, the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. They understood that to be the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one who was coming into the world. They were looking forward to him and there were all kinds of wrong ideas about what he would be like and what he would do. But Isaiah is clarifying something here saying, the one who is coming is bringing salvation. And it's more than just political salvation. It's more than just economic salvation. The salvation that he is bringing is total and complete salvation in every way. And it's primarily spiritual because that's our greatest need. See, that's where we get confused a lot of times as we begin to think about our greatest needs. And sometimes we think that our greatest needs are economic needs. Well, if I just had a little more money. Or sometimes we begin to think that our greatest needs are political needs. Well, if we just elect the right people and put the right people in power, then all this mess would be fixed. We begin to think sometimes that our needs are educational needs. Well, if I just got that next degree or that next level, if I just knew a little bit more, then I could fix my problems. But you see, the greatest problem of mankind is none of those. The greatest problem of mankind is that we are spiritually deficient. In fact, the Bible says we're spiritually dead apart from Jesus Christ. That we are dead in our trespasses and sins, the Bible says. And we need someone who can bring us spiritual life. So salvation is not just for the here and now, but it begins in the here and now. The very salvation that Isaiah was proclaiming here has come. What he was looking forward to at the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection three days later, we now look back upon. But we also look forward to the fulfillment of that salvation as he more and more, his kingdom comes more and more in this world. And as we look to his return, as we wait eagerly and look expectantly for the fullness of salvation to come into our world, there should be an expectancy among us. But far too long, we 
just walk around as if we expecting, expect nothing good to come. That we have nothing good to look forward to. But you need to understand and be reminded today, church, that it is the hope of the gospel that motivates us to live by faith today. Let me say that again to us because I think we miss this so often. It is the hope of the gospel, the future that awaits the followers of Jesus Christ, that motivates us to live for him today. That's why we just don't get saved and then get, go sit on a rock somewhere and wait for Jesus to come back. No, we work for him We share the gospel with others, inviting them to come into the kingdom. We enjoy living and working for the Lord because we're looking forward to the product of His work, which will be our ultimate and full salvation for all of eternity. Let me take you back to verse 1 for a minute. He begins there after saying this is a message from the Lord with two commands, to keep justice and to do righteousness. Now, those two things are in great deficit in our world today. We have an enormous deficit of justice, and we have an enormous deficit of righteousness. But I don't want you to misunderstand the order of his text here. Because you could easily misread Isaiah's words here and and begin to think that it's the keeping of justice and the doing of righteousness that will bring about the promise that comes in the next line. That's not his intention at all. In fact, I would remind us this morning that when we think about these good works, the things that will come out of us in response to God, we need to be reminded that good works are not prerequisites of salvation. They are products of salvation. Do do you understand the difference this morning? If you don't, think back to a couple of weeks ago if you were here and we talked about the rampant growth of what we know in our country as the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel puts these things in in, in opposite order. It sees our good works. Well, if you'll just do these things, if you'll just pray these certain prayers, if you'll just give to this certain preacher, if you'll just fulfill this list of demands, then God will have no choice but to bless you. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, folks. You need to cast that gospel out of your mind and exchange it for what is good and right and true. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that there is no prerequisite order of things that you must accomplish in order for God to be pleased with you. This is not a list of do's and don'ts that if you do them, God will be happy. If you don't, God will be sad. And regardless, God will some way be under your spell if you're good enough to do what you want him to do. This is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is sovereign over all the events. That means he is completely in control of everything that has ever happened on this planet. And when we forget that, we begin to think that we can somehow put God in a supernatural sleeper hold. Give him a good old noogie and say, God, okay, now you've got to bless me because I'm doing the things that you want me to do. This is not the God of the Bible, folks. The God of the Bible says these good works, this doing of justice and righteousness, this is not a prerequisite to salvation, these are the products of salvation. It's because you've been saved that you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It is because you have been saved that you are able to walk justly, to live humbly before your God. It is because you have been saved. You are not saved by good works. You were saved for good works, which the Father prepared beforehand that you should walk in them, Ephesians chapter 2 says. 
We need to be reminded of that this morning because there are many false gospels out there that are trying to give you the lists of do's and don'ts prior to the gospel. You see, it's the gospel that empowers us to do the things that please God. He empowers us for the very work that he has set before us. And if that were not true, we would not do any of it because the Bible says there are none of us who are righteous in and of ourselves. Not even one. All of us have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And what God did in response to our rebellion was he cast all of our sins upon his son. He was broken so that we could be made whole. He was pierced so that we could have peace. He was slaughtered so that we could be saved. This is the gospel. Colossians chapter 2, I'll take you to in just a moment. It references the next part of this verse. And you see in verses 2 and 4 and 6 a reference to the Sabbath. And I want to say a couple of things about this before we move through this particular part of the Scripture. There's a lot of misunderstandings about the relation of the Sabbath to New Testament Christianity today. There are, there are entire sects of folks who, who claim to be Christians that, that still say, well, if you don't worship on the Sabbath, which, by the way, let me clear, clarify something. Uh, this is not the Sabbath. Okay, that, that's one misunderstanding that we have. We think about, well, we come to church on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was always the seventh day of the week. Uh, in Spanish, the, the Spanish word sabado means Saturday. That sounds more like Sabbath than Saturday does. But Sabbath was always a Saturday. Now, just stay with me. You're going, why do, you, why do we care about this? Just stay with me for a minute and you'll understand. But to understand correctly that this is not the Sabbath, the reason that we worship on Sunday as we do is because we are recognizing the fact that this was the day in which Christ rose. Christ rose on the first day of the week, Sunday, and so we, res- we worship on this day in what is known as the Lord's Day. But hear me clearly. The day on which we worship is not the primary thing that's important. In fact, even with what Isaiah is saying here, he is not saying to us, if you don't participate in the Sabbath, then you're not going to be pleasing God. That's not the idea here. What we need to understand is what Paul spoke about the Sabbath in Colossians chapter 2. Let me take you there for just a minute, and then we'll come back to Isaiah. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul was dealing with a group of folks who were getting all wrapped up in all kinds of religious rituals and regulations. And he said, listen, let no one pass judgment on you in the question of food and drink. In other words, what you're going to eat, what you're not going to eat. Some people were making rules and regulations about that. Or with regards to festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. In other words, particular days, holidays, things that you would set aside. And if you were observing those holidays, you must be holy. If you weren't, you must not be He says, these things are just a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now take that in your mind for just a minute. We're not going to spend long here, but I think it's a really important thing for us to understand as we think about what Isaiah is talking about. He mentions the Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath three times here. What he is not saying is, if you don't worship on Saturday, you're doing it wrong and God's not happy. What he is saying is he's saying the Sabbath from the very beginning, back in Exodus chapter 20, when God told the people through Moses, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. What he was saying was that the Sabbath is merely a shadow of something greater. It's a sign pointing to something beyond itself. Now, if I go to town on Highway 60 this afternoon and I have lunch, 
and I come back this way, I see a sign that points toward McQuady. When I see that sign, I don't stop there and think that I'm there. If I do, I'm in the wrong spot. I'm about six miles removed from McQuady. The sign is merely pointing to the destination. That's the Sabbath, folks. That is the entire Old Testament law which the Sabbath stands as a sign of. The entire Old Testament law was pointing to something beyond itself. It was pointing to the fact that the law was never meant to save us any more than that sign was meant to be McQuady. It was merely meant to point us to our Savior. And Jesus said, I didn't come here to do away with the law. I didn't come here to do away with the sign. I came here to be the fulfillment of the sign. Are you seeing it? Are you seeing why this is so important? And you may think, well, I don't get caught up in the Sabbath. Why do I care about this? But we get caught up in all kinds of other things, all kinds of other rules and regulations. We think, well, if I do this, if I, if I just read my Bible every day, God will be happy with me. If I just pray every day, God will be happy with me. If I just stay away from these foods or if I exercise more or if I share the gospel more, whatever your more thing is, if I would just do more of X, then God would be happy with me. And you're missing it. You're missing the grace of God, which says it's not about what you do. It's fully about what he has already done. And what he has already done now enables you to do what you could never really do before. Yeah, you could keep the form of the Sabbath. You could keep the shadow of the Sabbath. But the fullness of the Sabbath points to a greater reality. You see, it wasn't just, people understand that the Sabbath, they say, well, yeah, that reminds us that God created the world in six days. On the seventh day he rested. So we have the Sabbath rest, and, that, and that's the, what we remember. But what we forget is the Sabbath wasn't a sign that just pointed backwards to something that happened in the past. The Sabbath is also something that points forward to something that's yet to happen. In the book of Hebrews, it says, there yet remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That's not saying that on Saturday you better quit mowing your yard. That's not, that's not what he's saying. He's saying the Sabbath is pointing forward to something much greater than itself. Every Sabbath was meant to be a practice session for heaven. The Sabbath rest that yet awaits the people of God is awaiting us in the place that God is preparing for us. It will be a place of rest and peace for those who trust in Jesus Christ. And so whether we worship the Lord on Sunday, Saturday, or Tuesday for that matter, we need to be reminded that whatever day it may be, it's not about the day, it's about what the day represents. It's not about the shadow, it's about the substance. And the substance belongs to Christ. Again, this morning, the the Sabbath was but a shadow of things to come. The substance was much greater. Jesus talked about these things in Mark chapter 2. There was this issue that came up that Jesus was walking along with his disciples one day, and his disciples got hungry. And as they were walking through this grain field, they began to pick off heads of grain and to eat them. And the Pharisees, who were constantly watching everything that Jesus did, as religious people do, they're always nitpicking at every little thing that everybody else does or doesn't do. The Pharisees saw that and they said, what's the deal, Jesus? Y'all aren't supposed to be working on the Sabbath. Didn't you, did you forget this is the Sabbath, Jesus, and you guys are out here picking grain on the Sabbath? They kind of gave him the naughty, naughty look, and Jesus responded with these words. 
Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's an important understanding, whether it's the Sabbath or any other thing that you might do, thinking that you will earn God's favor by doing it. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then he makes this important statement. So the Son of Man, that's how he always referred to himself more often than not, he is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so whatever your religious hang-up is, whether it's abstaining from certain foods or drinks, whether, whether it's observing certain holidays or not, whatever your religious hang-up is, Jesus is saying, I'm Lord over that. And if you're not looking to me, ultimately it doesn't matter how many good things you do or, or, or how many holidays you observe or how many foods you stay away from or how many days of the week you worship or don't worship. What ultimately matters is, are you looking to me? You see, what pleases God is the heart that looks to Jesus Christ in faith. That's it. And guess what? If you have a heart like that, you didn't get it on your own. God gave it to you. The very thing that pleases God is the very thing that he gives to his people. God will never ask you to do anything that he won't equip you for. That's a foundational principle of the Christian life. Moving on this morning, we've got a couple more promises to look at. First of all, the gracious promise of an eternal reputation. He begins to speak about two different groups of folks here. You've got the foreigners in verse 3 and the eunuchs in verse 4. Now, foreigner here represents anybody who wasn't of Jewish descent. You were not an Israelite. You were not descended from Abraham. Therefore, you were a foreigner. You were a Gentile. You were somebody that was outside of what they considered to be in the Old Testament days, the covenant with God. You were excluded. And in fact, even when you walked into the temple in Jesus' day, the temple, if I can describe it for you, was a series of concentric courts. In the innermost court was what was the the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. Uh, Only one guy, one day a year, could enter into the Holy of Holies. The The high priest could enter in on the Day of Atonement, one day a year, to make sacrifices and offerings for the people. But as you went out from the Holy of Holies in these concentric courts, with each court there were more folks that could enter in, and you see at the outermost court what was known as the court of the Gentiles. We would all be welcome there. If we were to go back to Jesus' day, we could all go into the temple today and we could go into the court of the Gentiles and we could do some things uh, to worship God there, but it would not be the fullness of worship. We were excluded from that because as you went into the court of the Gentiles, you would see that the next innermost court, the court of the Jewish men, we couldn't go in there because there are signs posted all over the walls. Some of you have heard me talk about this before. Signs posted all over the walls warning anyone who was not of Jewish descent that if you entered beyond that next entryway, into that next court, you were taking your life in your hands and you would be executed on the spot. This is the very thing the Apostle Paul was brought up on charges for in the book of Acts. When he came back to Jerusalem, he was brought up on charges. They said that he had taken one of his Gentile friends into one of those inner courts Now, Paul hadn't done that, but that was a good way of accusing him and and putting him in prison so that he would no longer speak about Jesus. But imagine what it would be like this morning. 